so i'll be honest with you it was very very unexpected okay you know yourself it was just after the elections and you know like there was so much going on mm -hmm. and uh I know like I don't want now to open up the whole experience about the, the thing because I've started writing books. Mm. So, mm. so I'm writing my first Brilliant. and that will come anyway in future because I think I'm not ready for that, mm. you know, all the stress. So uh, it wasn't something that I expected. Like I, I was just like living in the moment where I didn't know what's going to happen the next day. Mm -hmm. Right. So it was really, really a shock. And uh, I remember that day I went to work as normal. You know, I've always like, I was, I was kind of like really stressed. There was no time that I really felt like I wished if I could get, I don't know if you can hear me well, right? I can hear you perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. It was a time whereby I really wished if I was granted my papers, like in me, and I started like stressing out, but you know, like I've always tried, although I've been in times whereby I've been very low. But I've always tried to keep positive for myself, for my children, mm -hmm. and also just to understand that I've actually learned that it's my life has not been only me since I've been on the public platform. It's been around many people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I just try to be strong for myself. And uh, I remember that day I was in a Gresham Hotel. Yeah. I, I, I would I, I don't think if I'll ever forget that moment. <laughs> so I was having a meeting with a woman from Kelly mm -hmm. who had started a project and then she wanted me to give her like a bit of advice of how she's an academic anyway from UCD, but she lives in Kelly. So she wanted to find out of how she can actually be able to be helping women in direct provision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to start a project in Rintinova. Yeah. So she wanted to do something and she wanted to hear me out of how she can go about that. So we set up a meeting in a Gresham hotel. I remember the meeting was starting exactly 12 o'clock. Mm -hmm. So, and I was there and sitting down and she asked me, she ordered food. So I was hungry. Like I was really, really <laughs> hungry. <laughs> and, uh, the food got there exactly. And I remember write something because I wanted to not forget even the time mm -hmm. that I got the call mm -hmm. for, 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 for 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 when my uh solicitor notified me so exactly i think at one something should be 130 or 131 mm -hmm. i got a call from my lawyer okay. and when i got a call from my lawyer it went two ways because there was a lot of things that was happening at that time mm -hmm. so and my lawyer he did put straight like what i'm saying now he said ellie uh we just want to tell you that we've just decided to resign as your lawyer because your case is getting like complicated. And like, like, like because your case is, is this is how he said to you. Yeah? yeah. So, so because you have fucking got your status. <laughs> you know, like uh, when he used the word, which a lot of people have been like, oh, no, he shouldn't have put that. But, you know, like I had a very good and people they have also to put in account. I had a very good relationship with my lawyers yeah. and they were, they, they were really good. When I mean they were really great, yeah. they tried to make me as comfortable yeah. as I can. They tried to break every news to me in a very uh, humor way, mm -hmm. you know, like that. They knew that I'm really struggling. They knew what I was going through. And they also tried to 
bring it with a way that I don't know how I can put it, like with a sense of humor. For me, yeah. that was where they're coming from because I understand the relationship that was there. Mm-hmm. So, and and he said, yeah, because he just said, we've decided to resign your case because, and when he said resign, my body dropped. Like I, oh. I remember my, my yeah. body dropping. Yeah. <laughs> really, really. <laughs> if I was standing, I would have just, because you've just got your residence. Yeah. I said, what? <laughs> I stopped. I can't remember what I was talking. Like this lady was talking to me, but I can't remember. Like mm. I can't. And she knew, like even now, mm. <laughs> she, she, I haven't told her that, you know, that was the time that I got my residence because like, I just say to her, like, uh, you know what? I have to go. Mm. My daughter, she's not well. And that's how I had to put it to her. Mm-hmm. Like my daughter, she's not well. Then I had to go. And, um, said the food I was like no I don't want to eat the food Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm good (laughs) and and, uh, I just started running and I ran to um to the office and because I was in the office at the time because my office is in where Irish Refugee Council Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. so I went there and I spoke to someone like the you know like uh, like in there in that office I built relationships with Mm. people that some of it it's like more like more familiar that they're very very close that you know like I can actually share some stuff so I just went to the person that I felt like was so confident and I was like I just got a call from my lawyer Mm. they said I've got my residency but I'm not really too sure what it is (laughs) right (laughs) so because it could be either way it could be like I got a one month or I got a two months okay or or I got one year or, you know, like it could be anything. Okay. Right. So they said, okay, so just keep it, um, keep it just like that mm-hmm. till you get the letter. So I went home and then when I went home, did I find the letter? Oh yeah. I was, uh, I was, uh, while I was still there, my kids got the letter. So they opened it. Mm-hmm. Right. And they rang me like, mom, mom. I think you've got your, you've got your papers. <laughs> and I was like, um, I know, and I'm coming. And that time we were in Baseskin. Were you? Okay. So will you describe what Baseskin is like? Were you in a, you were in one room altogether or what? Yes. Yeah. 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 So that's where we were. We lived in a, we lived in a, because, uh, because, you know, like now my kids are teenagers. They mm. were teenagers at that time. So um, they, they're young adults now, but they, they were little, little teenagers at that time because mm. so, they were 18. So we had uh, a room that had three rooms in it and a shower. Mm-hmm. So me and my daughter, we were sharing mm-hmm. and my son had his own private room mm-hmm. at least. So I started uh, going home. Like there was a time that I was walking. I, I didn't know where the bus stop was. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I didn't actually like, I can't tell you like exactly how I felt at that moment. Mm. Cause it was on the other hand, real. And it was also so unreal. Yeah. Like I was like, was I dreaming? I do that quite a lot. Like sometimes I can have a phone call with someone and like I'll be thinking that I was dreaming mm. that wasn't a call and somebody will be like yeah yeah you did talk to that person so mm. like I was thinking like I was dreaming like mm. uh, I was like maybe that was a dream and then I went home and I got this later where they did put the picture that I had on my election poster mm. 
you know, and dad. <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, this was real me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so then the kids has not got their news, hadn't got their news. Mm-hmm. So there now I had like, like now there was like a conflict there. Like, okay, I might say like, I've got my papers, but what about the kids? Yes. What if the kids, they won't get their papers? Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? Because that happens anyway in direct provision. Does I could it? have started another battle for them. Right. So uh, we just decided to say, let's just be quiet. And we really kept it quiet. It was only about maybe five of us, like me, myself, two, my two children, and the two people that I spoke to mm-hmm. in the office that we knew, like with my lawyer and one person in the office that we knew, only five people. So we just kept quiet and said, we should see how it's going to go for the next coming week. Okay. So... Um, we stayed, uh, it was a week and you know, like that week was like too long because I didn't exactly know. Yeah. Because up there, they came on the very same day, but it was after a week. Okay. Right. So that week was like too long. And I like, I, I, I battled so much, (laughs) like I really battled so much. Like like I didn't know. And I was looking at them Mm -hmm. and just to think like, uh, is this going to be another, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what is it? And yeah, I stayed till the following Monday. And then I, I remember chatting to one of the people that they've been really, really nice to me. Mm-hmm. And they, and I said, then what should I do? You know, I've got my papers and what should I do? Because it seems like uh, this has not only been me, this is, this has not been only my doing, but I think the nation has also stood by me. Mm-hmm. So um, I mean, he said, okay, you can just, yeah, do a statement just to, mm-hmm. you know, like on your Twitter or, or, or whatever, just to thank, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, mm-hmm. just to make people acknowledge because it, it, it seemed like it would be a very, a, a, a good thing to do. Then you mm-hmm. just get your papers and just sit down, you know, mm-hmm. cause you can't reach everyone. And, uh, and I also felt like, uh, even me myself, I also felt the need that, so many people, they've actually stand with me for mm. all these years that I've been in direct provision. And I felt like some people say, oh, you don't owe anybody. But I also felt like I owe many people like that mm. gratitude because mm. uh, people like even you highlighted my voices in papers and all of that and things like that. So it's when I, uh, I, I, I on that Monday, and I just prepared that statement and I just mm-hmm. kept it. It was a too long statement, but I decided just to do a few lines on the, mm. on the Twitter. So we waited on Monday mm-hmm. about 11 o'clock. I was on the bus going to work. And mm-hmm. then my kids rang me and said, mom, we've got our papers. <gasps> and just from there, oh, like, that's amazing. like from there, it's when I was like, this is real. Oh, like Ellie. this is happening. Yeah. And yeah. And then I sent a, a message on Twitter <laughs> that like was really received really well mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. you know from the public it got mm-hmm. so much attention mm-hmm. that it was like tweeted about 500 some 600 something and it was liked over 3.1k so that even really shows me that it wasn't only my journey like mm-hmm. the way you know mm-hmm. so many so many so invested. so that's what really happened after and ellie papers. do you know now how long you're it, it, you've been granted or what so it's been so I, w- I, I, I was granted with residency okay. so that uh, that I have to be three, almost three and a half years and then apply for um, okay. for the okay. 
citizenship. Um, Irish passport. Her passport. Okay, okay. Um, so ha- what happened next? Like you've been fighting for that for so long and wanting it for yeah. so long. How did it feel then in the next few weeks when it actually had come? Yeah, so like um, after that happened, like what I've said to you, like it had to come with, uh, I think after I got my papers, I've never felt so low or down or being depressed. But after I got my papers, after a week, I now started feeling different. You know, the day that I got them was a little shock mm-hmm. and uh, excitement mm-hmm. and the happiness. But then after a week or so, two weeks, I started going a little bit low, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it was just like uh, first a lift over my shoulder has been dropped. Mm-hmm. But also then the reality started hitting me. And then I started like feeling not only homesick, but because during my time in direct provision, mm. I've lost so many people that I didn't even attend the funeral, mm. right? Mm. So I lost one of the uh, big pillar in my family who was my aunt that raised me after the death of my parents. So mm. that death also was a huge blow to me, which happened at that time. Mm. So I now started like now what should I what what should I do because now we have to move from direct provision mm. and start going into a reality and I have to find work I have to find a house mm. not only work but I have to find a house mm. and uh, I have to find work cuz like I was in a situation whereby I could I wasn't allowed to work mm-hmm. and then we had to move out of Baseskin and now going into a community so that's another real challenge mm. there how right. does that work? Are you given any so, kind of support there or like in terms of making the move out of Baseskin into finding somewhere? How did that all work? Yeah. So after that, I had to start now register into other departments like HAP, okay. you know, okay. HAP is the agency that, you know, helps you to get a house okay. and St. Vincent Depot. Yeah. I think I, I just did HAP and St. Vincent yeah. Depot. I didn't even do a lot of uh, agencies. Sure. And then you had to get forms and to fill it out. I had a girl, Ifa, mm. who actually also helped me to actually put all the paperwork together. Mm. And my friends took it up, like, you know, Margaret, you know, mm, Max, I <laughs> and Max, she had to actually do the filing of my okay. paperwork okay. for the landlords so that if I'm going out for landlords and looking for a house and I got uh, references from people that could have actually done, including Darina, she gave me a reference to, okay. uh, you know, like try to help me to get a house. Okay. It was not easy at that time. Mm. It's not easy to find a house in Dublin. Mm. But anyway, we were fortunate enough that mm-hmm. Within a space of, uh, that was July, August, September, October. End of October, uh, end of October, there was a very good sign that, you know, we've got a house. Mm-hmm. But because the house was not, uh, uh, the the landlord had to do a bit of work mm-hmm. around it. So we didn't go into there uh, straight away. We had to wait till the uh, the January when we were getting okay. uh, when and we did were moving you stay, into the house. Did you stay in Baseskin until until then? Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, what was it like the day you moved out and moved into your own house? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest with you. With all what is going on right now, mm. there are times that it hasn't started sinking in that you know we've left sure. Baseskin. You yes. know because. I think I've just come from direct provision into another direct yes. provision. That's a natural direct provision. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's a nature. Mm. So I don't know, like, if should we blame God for this? But uh, <laughs> no, you said <laughs> but it just happened like that. But anyway, just to actually 
the day that we actually processed everything and know that that house was now in our hands, we can actually move in there. Mm -hmm. It was a huge relief. Like, yeah. I remember going on days and days, like not sitting down, just being in the kitchen, making food and doing this <laughs> and doing, <laughs> do, sit in the garden, you know, like looking at the houses this way, I should live for the next, or, or yeah. if somebody come and say like, you have to get out, this is not your house, you have to go back to your yeah. house. Yeah. You know, all, all of those emotions, mm. you know, and uh, yeah, but it's my house. I'm, I'm sitting in my bedroom right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> And your two kids are, your kids are with you. They're living there too. All of us. All, all of us. Yeah. Did, yeah. Has it, yeah, that, that sense of settling in and feeling like this is your place. Has that, is that still ongoing or do you feel like you're there now? That sense of nobody's going to take this away. Um, It is like, a, it is a mixed emotion. There are times whereby you feel like the next day you're just going to be walking by a knock on your door and say you should go, mm. you mm. know, um, and there's another thing that I've always find that, you know, like when you've lived um, traumatic situations, yeah. they play out after quite a lot. Yeah. Then where you are in there, because I think where you are in there, what you feel is like you have to have strength to survive. So mm -hmm. the mechanism that you carry, the strength that you carry is like, I have to get through this day. I have to survive to get through tomorrow. But then I think after it's when, if you're not very, very careful, that's why other people, they don't know how to battle it out after they, it's, it's very hard. Mm -hmm. It's even easier. Sometimes you can even feel it. It was easier in direct provision than where I am now because you don't know what to do next. Yeah. 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 I get that. And so, yeah, because you said at the start, just before you got your residency, you were just literally living day by day and not thinking mm -hmm. beyond. Mm -hmm. But like you're saying there, now that you're out of direct provision, all the stuff that you weren't dealing with when you were in there because you couldn't. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have been safe to take on kind of mm -hmm. dealing with that stuff. I know you've written about this on your Instagram about how stuff started coming up and the trauma and you went home to Malawi. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Will you tell me about kind of making that decision and why you decided to do that? Um, It wasn't an easy decision. And if yeah. maybe you can notice through my pictures, like uh, I didn't even announce my going to Malawi and even many people didn't know that I was in Malawi till I came back. Mm -hmm. Cause like I, I even posted that, yeah. my pictures till I came back for mm -hmm. many, many reasons uh, for myself and my family, you know? So it was a decision that I didn't think through so much about it because I know it could have consequences, mm -hmm. but um, the other part of me felt like um, if I could go to Malawi, I could have a sense of, a sense of healing because uh because even up to now it's still like a very very emotional thing that i've not really dealt well but um i was in a very bad place that the only choice that i had was to, to gamble and you know like go back to malawi and see where my aunt like lay and uh, see where all my the whole family like uh you could tell i went to the graveyard and you know like it was just filled of tombstone and i went in um many houses like my family like my aunt or my dad and all these homes were empty like uh there were no people there and it's either i found a stranger or you know like a, ho a house caretaker and that was only my uncle that I did find him and 
it was just like two of us. Um, it was hard. It was a gamble. Like he, I needed to take that, but the only thing that could help me to find peace was to actually be brave and go there and just do what I did. Mm-hmm. And that that was I, I I can't even explain to you. I can't even put it in words. Like to say this is the reason why. But I think that was going to be part of my healing. Yeah. Was it the right decision to go? Yeah. 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 Has there been since you left Ali? Um, have you had to um, deal with a certain amount or a lot of grief at kind of at what? Come back again. Yeah. Have you had to deal with? I would imagine there's been a lot of grief because you're mm-hmm. now able to kind of start looking at what being in direct provision all the years that it took from your life. Is that something that you've had to deal with since leaving? Yeah, I think I still have that. Like, uh, yeah, of course. It's going to be a process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not something that is just going to happen. And it's it's so soon. It's recent. And um, it's a journey. It might take days, months, years, mm. uh, decades. But uh, also, sometimes for us to, to grieve better is to find peace mm-hmm. uh, within ourselves and within myself because our uh, the process the journey is like the journey that I've been mm-hmm. they come with a lot of baggage so you go through situations whereby you blame someone for being in that situation sometimes you even hate uh, yourself for making decisions to find yourself in that process you have also kids that you know like you've placed them in a situation whereby they've lost so much of their childhood you know and even you yourself you've lost so many years of uh, being a human, being mm. a woman, being a mother. And in that process also, you try to do right things. And in other people's eyes, they look not a good thing. Mm. And you kind of like go through situations, like just example, like what I went with the, through the elections time mm. and there is judgments there. And, and so there is a lot of things that you you try to get your um, head around and to process it. But um, what I always see myself is to find the best way. Uh, because if you want to get the answers for everything, I don't think you can actually find the answer for everything. Okay. And I don't think you can actually address every situation. Mm. But um, the best thing you can actually do is to find peace within yourself mm. and uh, when you find peace within yourself you you either start looking for other ways to help you a journey of like you know I'm great in the kitchen mm. and you know like I'm great with community and you know like writing mm. I'm good with storytellers I'm mm. storytelling and uh, you you truly need to find something that can actually help you yeah. to process that or you go through therapy so, you know, like uh, one way or the other, these are the only maybe some of the tools that I've actually figured out that you can actually get there. But to overcome grief, it's a very difficult thing mm. that sometimes some other people don't even know how to to deal with it. And people decide many ways. Some of them, they can decide to take their own life because they can't actually just manage to do that. But, um, you know, like hope and forgiveness and healing. I feel like that's the 
three tools that can help you to survive. Have you had counseling at all, Ali? Have you had counseling? Have I had one? Have you had uh, therapy or counseling or anything like that? Uh, I haven't had mm. any uh, because, um, you know, um, for the from July to um, almost December was like we were up and down looking for a house and mm. up and down and looking for a house. It was like uh, not only hunting for a job, but going to mm. a job because you had to do this like every day with how yes. uh, yeah. difficult the housing market is. In mm. I, it, it is in mm. Ireland and it was like that time like you had to go out every day view like maybe about three to five houses and uh, I didn't get that much chance but you know when I moved in again I was like okay I I went to Malawi as soon as we moved in because we moved Did in you? on the 1st of January mm-hmm. and on the 2nd of so we only had a month just to move in mm-hmm. and on the 2nd of February it's when I decided to mm-hmm. you know to go to Malawi and I went to Malawi and I came back I uh, can't remember well but it was between 16 and 20 something and i just got here and then there was a coronavirus yeah, <laughs> and then much, yeah. a week a week after the world went into shutdown so it's just been yeah the second for that when you when you're saying about work can you tell me what's happening with our table because you you were yeah, yeah. so <clears throat> that that was something like my therapy <laughs> there was something that i was really really looking forward to yeah you know <laughs> because yeah. i think that's one of the the best ways that I've actually carried myself and I will continue to carry myself because it has, that's the tool that has helped me. So I like after I got my papers and January moved in, now the best outlook was to, to expand our table. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cause you know, like uh, we've been social enterprise and the community entity. And then I had to also, and I've worked so hard for it. Mm-hmm. And also like, we didn't have to turn it into like, you know, like a, a good business it's already been done well so mm-hmm. like into a more bigger structure you know business to continue with employment and also uh our vision our mission and vision so that was all coming through together uh in in 2020 mm-hmm. but you know like uh when i was coming back we had all the plan laid out like uh we've actually launched new products on the 29th of of uh april okay. but uh, because of the shutdown and that all mm-hmm. the um other companies that we lie like printing labels and all of yes, that yeah. things are running slow and some of them they're completely closed so <clears throat> we've just kind of like delayed with that but uh you know like uh i'm still hoping for the uh for the best that you know like when everything reopens i've actually um developed new line of products okay that's seven products so uh we're trying now to get the services into online services okay, and i'm also starting like running a blog because uh, we had the dot e so i just got a, a domain which is a dot com okay. so we'll be yeah so writing a, a blog and also we'll have like online shops and uh, i've just invented like a new line of uh homemade uh, homemade ready-made uh mm-hmm. pasta sauce you can use okay. it for rice okay. and what and i've also packaging like drink i've also have a line of drink which is a ginger mm-hmm. immune boosting tamarind drink and cheesecakes okay and uh, some pasta some uh, some um rice like the uncle ben rice okay. so like uh, okay. packaged rices so okay, yeah so there'll be a lot of stuff coming yeah. coming through you know like i'm someone that always pushes so I maybe know. this yeah. <laughs> this time is gonna help me again to <laughs> invent a lot of things and i'm also like now fully seriously start putting my book together so mm-hmm. that's what i'm doing brilliant and do you have to get work 
on top of our table or is that enough to fund you at the moment? Uh, at the moment, uh, it, it's, it, it, I feel like I've put so much work into our table mm-hmm. and I think it's just the best to make it uh, functional that it can be mm-hmm. okay to fund me. Mm. But for now, Brilliant. you know, like uh, going to go and work for someone, I will forget something that I've worked, really worked so hard. Yeah. So like for now, it's going to be building it on a different structure. Yeah. So it might take me like one to eight months for it to start funding me really well, okay. which for me, I, I, I don't see that as a problem because I've yeah. carried this for over six years. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> totally. so, you know, like waiting for eight months, is just like nothing. So okay. I'm just working very hard so that it can be able to sustain Brilliant. me and other people that, you know, works around. Brilliant. Um, can I ask you about how your, if you don't mind, how your kids are getting on in the sense of like how for you as a mother, you've tried to support them through this change of leaving direct provision and now setting up your own home together um, and how that has been for you to kind of mother them through that? Uh, you know, the whole process has been so difficult for them. Mm. And, uh, you know, like when they joined me, we were lucky at that time that I was living in a, in a place where but it wasn't like a direct provision center. Yes. And then we moved there to go into direct provision. Mm. For them, they've actually never lived in that situation. It was really, it was traumatic. Yeah. Like it was, it was a shock, a shock whereby there was a time we became very, very dysfunctional. Because mm. like my son, he was failing to deal with it. Mm. Like my daughter who was failing to deal with it mm. and it was constant fights, like, mm. you know, mm. like battles, like uh, it wasn't easy. Like yeah. even me, myself, it was not easy to process my head really well because, yeah, uh, you know, uh, it was just hard. Yeah. yeah. And uh, through there, uh, we slowly by slowly, we had to they had to start accepting that that's where they are. Mm. And then of of lately, when we were living there, it actually brought us a little bit together. Now mm-hmm. trying mm-hmm. to understand that, okay, I think they now started to understand like this is why our mother has fought so, so hard mm-hmm. for this system. Because like if we've just lived here for almost like one year and eight months, mm-hmm. like almost close to, yeah, one year and 10 months, but this is how we're feeling. And what about those people that they've grown mm-hmm. and lived in this system for like 10, 10 years, mm-hmm. you know, but it was very, very hard for us to reach to that. Mm-hmm. And uh, moving from that to here, uh, I think they've seen it, they've embraced that opportunity mm-hmm. and not only embracing the opportunity, but I think they're very grateful. Yeah, the way we are. Are you still in contact with anyone who's still living in direct provision? I haven't stopped. I am very still like uh, I it's, it's just um, I've been doing so much of lately, so much, with, you know, with this situation oh, going. Yeah. And sometimes even if I want to run away, I don't think I can run away mm-hmm. because like people has my number. People knows where I am. Mm-hmm. So I get so much calls from direct provision center, people you... telling me what's going on. Mm-hmm. Sometimes maybe I'll be the first person to hear the situation that's going on in the in the center like what can we do this okay. is what's happening here okay. and also with that you know like being able that i've had opportunity of um, having a home and with uh things that are happening in the center like you know lacking of healthy food and stuff mm-hmm. like that i've been trying to make meals like ready-made fresh meals go and dispense it in the center just you know i can't do it for everyone but for the mm-hmm. few that i can actually manage mm-hmm. to do that for them you know mm-hmm. like uh 
So that's what I've also been doing. So I'm very, very much back and forth. I don't think it will stop today or it will stop tomorrow. I mm. think it, it's, I mean, we always say like, never forget where you're coming from. I mean, it's still going to be part of me mm. as long as I live. Yeah. Have you then in that sense got a good sense of what people are going through now with COVID who are still in the centres? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have pretty much sense. You know, like there was a, a situation that was going in uh, Kilani. I think I was one of those people that I get. I got a call before people started like uh, doing what was doing, like protesting and all of that. So I got a call and I spoke to a few people that, you know, like some of these things are private and you don't even need to talk, you know, because people, they're afraid of their, you know, like status and all of that. So, you know, uh, it's very, you can sometimes convince people to be like, okay, there is ways that you can handle or do with this situation. But, you know, another thing also you have to understand is like you are talking to people when you are in your house and when you your life has changed and it's really comfortable. It's And sometimes you can also try to advise people through your experience and uh, it's, it cannot work for everyone, you mm. know. So it cannot work for everyone. People will think like, okay, maybe she's out of here and she's very much comfortable and she doesn't relate so much of, you know, like yeah, of yeah. how things are. We are in this situation. But um, I just hoped for the best to give them the very best advice and to give them the uh, best tools that they can actually mm. uh, get through it and mm. find the better solution. Mm. Because two wrongs does not make any right. And that's mm. one thing that I've learned during my process mm. so you you have to do it in a certain way you have to do it differently but it's been really really hard there were many cases of COVID-19 in direct provision mm -hmm. thank god we didn't lose many people mm -hmm. a lot of people managed to survive you know there were people that were being transferred from one place to the other mm -hmm. but also another thing is like uh, I think there is just uh, so much of like so much going on and uh and it, there's no excuse there anyway. But uh, on the other hand, we also have to appreciate and uh, um, that, you know, like the government is going through so much. So mm. there'll be always, you know, mm. um, misunderstandings there and forgetting people like uh, direct provision. But I'm just hoping like the way they are doing, the, the way the government is dealing with every community, every other issue, they should just treat the people more, more like the same. You know, being understanding that they're exhausted, but they just also try to 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 treat the people more like the same. Yes. And then just lastly, Ali, how are you finding um, living in under the restrictions at the moment? And what's your kind of day to day like? Uh, it's it's actually very difficult. I'm, I'm doing I'm doing so much work uh, online work. Like what I've said, like we are trying I'm trying to get our table to go online. Uh, the other part of it, like I'm trying to work on the our table production to go online mm -hmm. and do do a few things that is gonna keep it alive. Um, I do much of my uh, live cooking videos, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, to be honest, I've actually taken this quarantine seriously. I haven't been like uh, very very much outside or mm -hmm. human to human contacts or do things differently mm -hmm. maybe also being in direct provision has helped me to appreciate that it's actually better because this is about us wanting to live you know because mm -hmm. i think the most profit we can actually ask for now is to have a life mm -hmm. because if we have a life you know like we'll be able to continue in 2021 2022 mm -hmm. we've lost many years of our lives 
while we're living. And I think one year of trying to to keep ourselves not to die, mm. it, it's greater than being nine years of being locked somewhere. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. So yeah. So if you want to just explain who you are and what it is you do, that'll be perfect. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Um, so my name is Katie Mannion. I'm managing solicitor with the Irish Refugee Council uh, Independent Law Centre. We provide legal representation in the law centre to people who are seeking international protection and people who have been recognised as refugees or who have been granted subsidiary protection, which is another form of protection. Um, so we provide legal representation from the very early stages of the international protection process, sometimes before somebody has even applied for international protection. And we give them a lot of advice and support around filling in their very detailed questionnaire. Um, we attend with people at their interviews um, for international protection and we make detailed written submissions. And we also... So we provide a very um, I suppose, supportive form of legal representation to people in the international protection process. And we also provide legal representation to people who are seeking family reunification, who have come to Ireland and have been granted um, protection status here in Ireland and who now want their family members to join them here. So that's the main focus of the law centre particularly. More broadly, the Irish Refugee Council um, is an advocacy and supportive organisation. We have a drop-in centre, which is, has now switched to being an online information service sure. um, since COVID started. Mm -hmm. And we also have housing, provide housing supports to people who are seeking to move on from direct provision. Mm -hmm. And we have um, education supports to people in, the, in moving on to third level education. And we do a lot of advocacy where obviously seeking to end direct provision mm -hmm. and seeking improvements for the lives of people seeking international protection. And typically, Katie, um, how soon after someone arrives here and goes into direct provision, would you make contact with them? So they make contact with us often very quickly, mm. um, often maybe in the days after they've applied for some, you know, sometimes in the days after mm. they've arrived in Ireland. Mm. Um, some people apply for international protection, a lot of people at the airport, and then okay. they will attend at the international protection office mm. um, to make their claim. And sometime, um, and then they will kind of come and visit us at our office then mm. um, shortly after. Okay. There is a right to legal aid for the international protection process mm. as well. Our in, our centre isn't in the legal aid process. We're an NGO and not-for-profit um, body, which also provides legal aid to individuals. And then other people who have been in Ireland, maybe they arrived in Ireland as students or mm. for other reasons, maybe on holidays, Sometimes something will have changed for them at home where they are, a protection need will have, have arisen and then they realise they need to think about applying for international protection. So they would come to us before they apply. Okay. Um, when I spoke to Ellie the first time and she described where she she was originally in a centre in Mayo, and one of the things she said was that a, a lot of the people there, I mean, almost to the point where it'd be typical was, you know, it, kind of the impression you got would be suffering with um, their mental health was under extreme pressure even before they arrived in direct provision which then wasn't um, doing that any further good would that be you, you might tell me a little bit about you know the situations that the people you're dealing with 
would that be typical and kind of what kind of situations they're coming from or what their kind of existing stress levels are before they even go into the system? Yeah, so I mean, people come from all over the world, but mm. typically I mean, the reason they've come to Ireland is seek, to seek protection. They mm. are at risk, their lives are at risk, their safety is at risk in their country of origin. And that's that's the reason they have left. So if people have, you know, people have experienced such um, high levels of stress and difficulties in their countries of origin. I suppose some of our clients would be coming from Syria or Palestine. Some would be trafficked in um, from their country. A lot of people who have experienced torture in their countries of origin um, or along the journeys. Um, people will have, you know, a lot of people have traveled overland from their countries of origin. For example, you have young people who have walked all the way from Eritrea through Sudan and Libya and hadn't have arrived from boat over boats um, mm. to Italy and then come on to Ireland. So people both in their countries of origin and on their journeys have experienced extremely high levels of stress. Mm. And, and they can be for any number of reasons, you know, um, related mm. to political reasons, mm. you know, gender specific reasons, okay. maybe related to FGM mm. or... Um, or well, trafficking for sexual exploitation, sexual abuse, mm. um, either in their countries of origin or along the way. Okay. There's a very high level of sexual abuse in the histories of, of our client group. You know, just different levels of, of persecution. Mm. Um, very often, um, you know, polit for political reasons and also issues related to family or ethnicity, mm. race, Religion is mm. um, is obviously another huge reason, mm. um, or for people have have travelled and, yeah. and the reason they have ex experienced torture mm. or threats to their lives. A lot of people will have such high levels of grief as well, having lost mm. members of their family. In um, some will know what has happened to them, and others will not know, which is obviously d deeply upsetting. Um, not knowing where your family is, whether they've mm. made it safely uh, or whether you'll ever see them again. So it's fair to say that typically somebody going into direct provision is quite likely to be someone who's already suffering um, severe, in, uh, you know, significant trauma. Um, and then I'm right in saying there's nothing within the direct provision system that provides or supports or helps some somebody's mental health. Is there? I know, I know Ellie told me, I think that she was on, she was put on antidepressants at one point um but can you tell me a little bit about is there any kind of yeah well i suppose ideally when somebody arrives in ireland they should arrive into the reception um the reception center in balsaskin and they should be they should undergo a vulnerability assessment which okay. would pick up on any vulnerabilities and mm. that would include mental health mm. um, and experiences of torture that need um specific um help care um, unfortunately, that vulnerability assessment, although it has been in law since July 2018, it isn't being implemented yet. But there okay. are there are health supports. I mean, everybody who is in the international protection process does have the right to access health care, the right to access a GP. Um, and a lot of people are supported through Spirasi, which is a wonderful organization okay. that supports and um, that provides psychological and um, psychosocial support to people who have experienced torture in the past. Okay. Um, 
we find we rely a lot on safety net which is another wonderful organization as well um to provide for the health health needs of our mm. clients mm. but certainly while there are where there are those um there are some you know there are some supports there there, there are not enough mm. and the vulnerability assessment which is there in law if that were implemented and if people's vulnerabilities were identified at a very early stage mm. that would go a long way to then putting in place the necessary supports for those people so we think you know that is a really important thing that could be put in place um, you know, people have, people have access to the GP. It is often very difficult for them to access other supports mm. in, in um, because I suppose a lot of the time due to very long waiting lists, mm-hmm. the same the same as everybody else, mm-hmm. um, and re- relying on public health. You know, there can be long delays, particularly in accessing uh, mental health care. And is there why is the vulnerability test not being um, carried out at the moment? <laughs> yeah. Um, I wish I knew. Mm. Um, I think it hasn't been figured out exactly what is the best way to carry it out. Mm. Um, Because, you know, it requires um, consideration of a lot of different aspects. I mean, some of it is, you know, actually being a child, being a minor, that is a vulnerability Mm. that demands that certain special reception needs are put in place to meet the the particular needs of that child. Mm. Other special reception needs are, for example, being pregnant. You know, those are very easily identified. Um, And then I suppose some types of experience of of torture, mental health, they might not be disclosed at a very initial meeting. Yeah, of course. Um, Mm. You know, and they're not something that can be disclosed in a tick box exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think maybe there is all that just requires a lot of figuring out. And uh, um, but it is, you know, Vulnerability assessments are required across all the European countries that have um, that are members that have opted into the, the reception conditions directive. And, you know, they are taking place in other countries and certainly any of those challenges are not insurmountable. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, even, for example, with COVID-19 and with the challenges that we have had, it would have been very helpful for the government to have an understanding of the levels of vulnerabilities that existed amongst their individuals to identify who would be at high risk of um of contracting or of being you know very ill if they contracted COVID-19 um so I think it was really highlighted here again the need to conduct that vulnerability assessment. You mentioned there the um I think I'm going to get this wrong the reception condition directive Mm -hmm. what is that? So that is the directive that Ireland um opted into in July 2018 and that sets out now our obligations towards people in direct provision. Um, we haven't previously signed up to any legis- any in, you know, in EU law in that area okay. um, and that sets out that we must um, provide people with material reception conditions and it also includes provisions around vulnerability assessment and it's the EU law that explains how people who are in the international protection process must be treated. And the idea behind that is that so everybody who applies for international protection throughout Europe must know that they, they can avail of a, at least a minimum standard of living while they are while their applications for international protection are being processed. But are our current standards in direct provision? Aren't, are they meeting that? 
Well, for example, the vulnerability yeah. assessment yeah. isn't being met. So, yeah. you know, that sets out then that the special reception mm. needs of every individual is yeah. there for yeah. uh, are put in place. And, yeah. and that's not being yeah. implemented at the moment. It, it, does any other country, say in Europe, for example, have anything like direct provision? There is... I suppose there's a different, there are a variety of different ways that accommodation is provided across Europe. And um, I mean, so, some are, are quite similar to Ireland and, mm. and others people are provided with funding uh, or, you know, with individual payments that they can then use okay use for themselves okay can you um can you tell me a little bit about um for somebody who might know nothing about direct provision when it started exactly what it is how it works or you know doesn't work yeah. as the case maybe so direct provision started 20 years ago and it is the system that the department of justice um has operated to meet the, the material reception needs of people who are seeking international protection so while somebody is in the process, in that in international protection process, that's when the state is looking at their claim for international protection and examining whether they fit within the legal definition of what a refugee is in international law. And during that time, um, the person has a right to accommodation, um, to meals and a daily, a daily expense allowance. So that daily expense allowance at the moment is thirty-eight euro eighty per week for an adult, mm. and twenty-nine eighty for a child. Mm. Um, now it is possible after six months to work for somebody in the international protection process to work that was okay. not possible previously. Mm. So there are now over eighty different locations where people are living in indirect provision. And these vary from long-standing direct provision centres to smaller B and small B and Bs and small hotels. Mm. And over the last two years, there's been increasingly a use of emergency accommodation, where the, the state is, I suppose, renting rooms within hotels that are operating for other purposes as well. Um, and then there's a small number of um, own door accommodation units, mm -hmm. but the vast majority of people are living in congregated settings. Okay. There are 7,700 people at the moment um, living in direct provision and emergency accommodation centres. And um, about 1,500 of the 7,700 are in the emergency direct provision. Do you know how many of them are children? There are um, 1,600 um, 1, children are living in direct provision. Okay. Um, some of, uh, we've spoken about the issues with mental health and we're going to speak about the specific issues around COVID. But just before that, you might, if you, if you would mind, tell me some of the general um, really problem, problematic issues that you guys would see. Like, I know... Um, when I interviewed Ellie when she was still living there, some of the things she mentioned were, you know, the fact that there's literally nothing for people to do. She was out, like I say, in Mayo, there was nothing for people to do. Their internet access was very limited. Um, that the rooms, people could wander in and out of the rooms. Um, there was no privacy. The meals were at a set time of the day, um, at a time when a lot of people, like I think, you know, she was saying if you were someone who was 
suffering from severe depression, you were finding it hard to get out of bed, but if you missed your meal, that was it. That the food was very stodgy and unhealthy. Um, she found... Um, sorry, I'm just being joined here by a little helper. Um, so that, there were some of the things that she... Um, that we would have discussed... Um, would you maybe, in your words, tell me some of the things that you guys see that are, you know, particularly difficult within the for people living yeah. within the system? Yeah, there are a lot of the issues that we see. I mean, I think because there are eighty different centres and some are new and some are well established, there's a real variety between the the centres and the level hmm. of support that is provided. Um, I suppose one of as as you, I mean, you've touched on a lot of them there, but privacy is a huge issue. I mean, yeah. so many people are sharing mm. rooms, mm. sharing bathrooms, mm. don't have any um, sharing all those intimate spaces, sharing laundries. Mm. Um, family whole families are living in one room, and mm. um, and you know without their own living space. Mm. So they're condu- conducting their whole lives within that one yeah, yeah. living space, yeah. which is particularly problematic at the moment, mm. but is always a problem really mm. when it comes down mm. to it. And you have families sharing with with the different people who have totally different um, needs, at, you know, at different stages of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sharing cooking spaces, sharing laundry with people from, you know, from all over the world. So people from uh, different religions, different mm. perspectives. Mm. Um, for example, there's a for um, for people from the LGBT community that can be very difficult if they're sharing with people mm-hmm. maybe who are from countries that are typically, you know, have had a kind of homophobic upbringing. Mm. Um, so I mean, that sharing of space just creates a communal living creates so much so many difficulties, particularly when it mm. when it goes on for a long time. Overcrowding mm. is a problem, um, <clears throat> particularly um, specific to COVID, but um, the, and the impact on children uh, is huge. You know, so yeah. I mean that, as you said, the set meal times is very problematic. We've had people saying, you know, we we're not allowed to heat up our bottles after a certain oh, time. God, we can't. Yeah. We're not allowed in the kitchen after six o'clock. Mm. You know, having your mm. meal at five o'clock. So is it similar to anybody who has had a stay in hospital? You know, you have your meal at five, six o'clock and then you're starving by nine o'clock mm. and there's absolutely nothing that you can get. And are there if in some centres there's no access to the kitchen, okay. no kettles. Yeah. Yeah. Is it is there are there any centres where people are cooking for themselves or? Yeah. So in, okay. there are increasingly there are centres where people are cooking for themselves. Okay. Um, and so, is, you know, that, that's something that is positive. But is that food being um, provided for them or are they having to pay for that out of their allowance? How's Where are they getting the food? No, so usually it's on a um, kind of a points, a voucher system, point system. Okay. So they can avail of a, an on-site shop Okay. Where they go with a number of points and okay. can can bring back food to their to their right. um, areas or, or to the shared kitchen and okay. and I know there were some difficulties in the beginning certainly with that around having enough food for example for teenage boys or for different <laughs> for different people who are mm. you know women who are pregnant are mm. uh, different people who eat different yeah. diets um, yeah. and we've had difficulties even recently with. Um, uh, it just varies in different centres, but with with staff, you know, kind of displaying racist views really and being difficult mm. with individuals. So, mm. for example, somebody wanted to buy um, tinned fish and were informed that, you know, they couldn't buy that amount at the time with their vouchers. That, that was, you know, buying too much of one certain product. Um, and 
So it was a lot of the time people report that the baby food or specific children's baby mm. um, p- things people need, you know, baby milk, baby formula and baby food you know, isn't provided and they're having to buy that out of their allowance. Right. OK. OK. And for children, I remember talking to Ellie one time and it really struck me. She was talking about her, her twins were in they were kind of late teens then in school and just little things like that would be so important for teenagers like if the gang of friends were going to the cinema her daughter's friends at the weekend you know and getting there how would they get there and the coffee that everyone's buying and you know um, and she was saying they had to go to the post office I think it was to collect their weekly allowance but that was coinciding when they were in school and just all these like minor little I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what it's like for children like are they are children always they're always going to school locally and apart from that like how are they are they you know what what is life like I suppose in direct relation yeah. for um for yeah so children are usually going to school locally and I mm. think you know school can be such an important outlet mm. and um they you know children say that that is the time when they feel most uh, most integrated and yeah, most yeah. part of the community mm. and then it's all those little things as you mentioned that are outside that is the birthday parties you know how mm. can you ha- oh, hold your you know organize a birthday party in a direct provision center yeah. and how could you possibly pay for one of those play centers yeah. you know on on that level of allowance yeah it's just it just wouldn't be possible lack of exactly lack of transport to get to extracurricular activities or to afford um the, the kind of the extra things that are mm. involved in extracurricular mm. activities mm. Um, and just yeah, not being able to afford to get there or to manage to get there, even as you say, with the meals, you know, if, if we have to have our meal at six o'clock and the football training starts, mm. you know, just then that might not be possible to get there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, and then I suppose there's just the additional difficulties, for example, of children who might have come with one parent Mm. And whose other parent is back home or whose siblings are back home. And Mm. um, particularly if they're in in poor torn areas or if they're in a situation of difficulty. I mean, there's the worry and and the grief for that person as well. Mm. So there's all those additional Mm. worries. There's language difficulties, obviously, to have to to learn all new languages. Mm. Um, Just the living conditions generally. I mean, I suppose there can be lots of positives on the other side, Mm. you know, there can be the advantages of living um, close to other children where, yeah. where you get, okay. you know, where there are children your age, you know, they're, they're, and when I suppose, you know, while highlighting the difficulties, it's important to remember just the resilience um, that mm. we see from our clients and mm. their children all the time. And, mm. um, you know, how fantastic people are getting on with the situations mm. that they are placed in and, and getting the best out of them. But certainly, yeah, I mean, I think difficulties around accessing third level education as children get mm-hmm. into second level school mm-hmm. can be another real worry for them mm-hmm. um, where, you know, if they don't have their a decision on their um, applications yet, that can be a real worry because while they're waiting, there can be a lot of difficulty accessing third level education. Um, and then just inadequate supports. I mean, the, mm-hmm. you know, they're not going to be able to get the extra grinds or, you know, the extra things maybe that Irish children or mm. um or their peers at school might mm. be able to access more easily do they i know ellie told me that the first place she was in there were a lot of sites that were blocked on the internet they quite a limited like they had internet access where she was but you couldn't go on a lot of sites is that the case still or would there be kind of full access for people in centers 
I'm not I uh, I'm not aware of that problem okay. myself but I know one of the difficulties a lot of our clients face is that they can access Wi-Fi in the shared spaces maybe in this kind of the okay. shared living space but not mm. in the bedrooms okay um and you know that can be really difficult now where everybody needs to yes. be um yeah, yeah. self-isolating yeah. Um, yeah. but even on in any times trying to study exactly, you know yeah. having a study space I think as well is a mm. huge difficulty mm. if you have a family of five or six in the same room with yeah. no extra living space yeah. and they're trying to conduct all of family life in that one small bedroom space you know this isn't you know a self-contained mm. unit mm. you know that you might see around the world where all family life you know with facilitate that facilitates that type of life this is one bedroom that was designed to be a bedroom in a hotel mm. it didn't envisage that it was going to be a place for long-term life to to be carried out um, um so you know children having learning to crawl but having just the tiny space in between beds you know having just so little play space yeah is a real difficulty no place to play yeah yeah. And then, Katie, if you wouldn't mind just explaining. So when COVID began, what happened in direct provision centres and how that impacted mm-hmm. people in there? Yeah. So I suppose when COVID began, began it was recognised that uh, ours was, well, we were worried from the from the beginning of mm-hmm. the impact because so many people are sharing their rooms mm-hmm. and not only sharing rooms, but I said sharing bathrooms, sharing living spaces, sharing laundry. It's just extremely difficult in that context Mm. to Mm. self-isolate. So the Department of Justice um, got an extra 650 beds and began to move people out so that there would be fewer people would be sharing. And there they aimed to get it down so that there would be only three people sharing a a room, Mm. Um, you know, because more than that were sharing rooms up until that time. And that's three people from different households, individual households were um, staying together right so they started to move people out you know which was positive and which was something that we had called for in order to you know so that people would better be able to self-isolate um or to socially distance um our other our concern was really around vulnerable people and provisions were made to try to identify the mm. it was the easiest easiest thing was to identify those people who were older and they took steps to cocoon older people. And then the much more difficult thing was people with underlying health issues because there was no, um, you know, that hadn't been collected previously and the Mm -hmm. Department of Justice doesn't hold that health information. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, neither does the HSE. So um, I suppose individuals and organisations then contacted, um, made contact to identify who fell within the vulnerable groups that needed to be cocooned. Mm -hmm. So that, that was on the positive side. The difficulties that arose around that were because people, other people were moved out of direct provision or you know, moved out of the centres in which they had been living mm-hmm. very quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them would have been living there for very long times, had mm-hmm. um, worked lo- work locally, many of which was in essential services okay. or were, um, were studying locally. Though mm-hmm. so, uh, I just had uh, different connections. They were moved to other places at very short notice, less than 24 hours notice in some cases. Okay. Some, you know, had work the next day, didn't have an opportunity to let work know that mm-hmm. they wouldn't be able to go in. And, and some actually became homeless because of that, because they, um, you know, for a short time, because they didn't, they were excluded from, from their previous accommodation bec- and they weren't able to move on to the next place because, um, you know, they had other commitments locally. Okay. Um, other people then, you know, it, it, 
everybody was informed that they could leave direct provision and um, for the duration of COVID um, and could return at, you know, at the end and they wouldn't lose their place in, they wouldn't lose, you know, the possibility of being in, in direct provision, but they would have to apply for reaccommodation. But unfortunately, um, you know, while I suppose at the beginning, people didn't know how long this was all going to take. So while they could maybe avail of somebody's couch for a short period mm. of time, obviously, as time goes on, that, you know, pl- places strains on friendships. Mm. Um, and some people, you know, found that difficult and maybe kind of became, ended up finding themselves homeless as a result of that, because kind of a temporary accommodation that they were available was no longer available. So our law centre and drop-in centre um, has been supporting people around that in reaccessing accommodation. Okay. Um, other issues, I suppose, were the, you know, the Department of Justice needed to move a lot faster than they would normally move mm-hmm. and they, to set up new centres. And in that context, the centre in Cahar Savine was set up, um, you know, without adequate checks really being put in place. And so there were a lot of problems in that centre when it was opened initially. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, over 20 cases of COVID were um, were identified in, in that centre and they have subsequently been moved on to self-isolation facilities and, and probably moved on to other places now. Okay, and is have there been any um, deaths from COVID by anyone living in direct provision? I'm not aware of any, but that, that's not to say for sure that there aren't, but I haven't been informed of any. Okay, um, and is there... Is the are the self isolation me- measures is the rate coming down or is it is it does it look like they're being successful in managing the outbreaks there or is it hard to say at the moment? Um, I understand. Just in the last four days, there's been another um, cluster in a direct provision centre. Okay. I don't have you know the exact sure. the exact numbers or um, is it so. But I mean, it seems that the numbers are coming down I, I imagine mm-hmm. but you know there has been a recent cluster so if people want to do something what's the best thing you can do to help end this situation and this system i suppose there's, there's a number of different things um you know there are with people in 80 different centers around the country now mm-hmm. uh it's likely that you might be able to link in with local groups mm-hmm. and you know to listen to individuals themselves and find out what their individual needs are mm-hmm. as a group or individually mm-hmm. and to become an ally for people who are in the international protection process mm-hmm. um on the accommodation side um you know some people who are living in direct provision have status and would be able to move on but have not been able to find appropriate accommodation yeah. that would accept the HAP payment that they would become entitled to with mm-hmm. their status. Mm-hmm. So one way is to actually identify suitable accommodation. And our housing officer, Aoife, has been working on that over the last number of months and has assisted a number of people to mm-hmm. move on. Um, so that would be another possible way. Um, buying masks. So we make good our um, our operating assistant that people who are in the international protection process who have experience of it are making mm-hmm. very high quality masks and when somebody purchases one they send another one to somebody who is in direct provision so that's another sorry, positive where do, where do they purchase them from where do they purchase those okay. masks where do they pr- they can purchase it online on your website we make good and it's also we accessible good. through okay. um, the Irish Refugee Council okay. um, website okay we link okay 
So it's donating to charities who are supporting people seeking international protection. Mm. It would be extremely helpful at mm-hmm. this time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are national charities um, like ourselves, the Irish Refugee Council, and then there are local charities and, and regional charities as well. Okay. Do you, um, sorry to interrupt you, go ahead. No. Um, do you see this system ending anytime soon? Yeah, so that was going to be, well, my last suggestion would be okay. to contact TDs. Um, and, you know, there has been a lot of talk and discussion in the last number of weeks about ending direct provision and about possibly including that in the programme for government. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is a good time to contact your TDs mm-hmm. and to, you know, to insist that it is included in the programme for government. Mm-hmm. And that if it is included, that steps are taken thereafter to find alternatives mm. and to act on those alternatives and really to bring about an end to direct provision. Just two more questions, Katie. Um, what would the typical length of stay be for someone who is in the direct provision system? It's two years. So at the moment, um, before somebody has their, their first interview, it can be at eight to ten months well actually there's prioritized countries uh, and non-prioritized countries that take longer but now um you know with the last three months there have been no interviews taking place and no um tribunals taking place either which is the appeal mm. um so obviously that there will be additional delays likely on unless something mm. you know something can happen that will mm. process the claims um faster but can be um, typically two years but can be longer so if somebody has um, you know is is refused at for at the in, uh, interview stage and goes on to appeal obviously it'll be longer hmm. um, or if there's judicial review proceedings in place um, or if they need to take judicial review or if their case is concerns an issue that is already subject of judicial review okay. um, sometimes their cases can take a lot longer okay and lastly, has have they ever accepted a child on their own without a parent into the system? Oh yeah, so yeah, unaccompanied minors arrive, um, you know, often arrive al- alone. And actually, we represent a lot of unaccompanied minors in their applications for family reunification with their parents and their siblings. Um, and I think the number was fifty from last year um, arrived in Ireland. But um, yeah, there are a number of unaccompanied minors who, who come to Ireland. And if so, when they go into the system, what what's their living situation? Who are they in a room with? Yeah, so unaccompanied minors, where their age is accepted, are placed in foster care. Usually, either foster care or in residential settings. So they're treated as children first. Okay. A difficulty arises for children who are unaccompanied who are unaccompanied minors, but whose ages are disputed. So where somebody's age is disputed, um, initially they they should be recognized or considered and treated as children, but sometimes if their age isn't accepted, then they will be in direct provision accommodation um, as an adult. Their, their claim will be treated as an adult. Okay, so they do sometimes end up in a direct provision centre. Yeah, there are no sometimes parents if situation. their age isn't accepted or if they don't have the documents to prove their age they can end up in direct provision yes thank you so much for talking to me and for covering all that i really appreciate it 